Welcome to a special edition of California Now, a podcast produced by Visit California. I'm Satirius Johnson. January is California Restaurant Month. It's a wonderful time to explore the Golden State's culinary offerings. And we're honoring this annual event by revisiting some of the food-focused high points of our first year of podcasting. With chefs, critics, and experts like our guests, there's no shortage of California and even regional chauvinism. Here's critic Kate Washington on the pleasures of Sacramento dining. We have amazing growers who are growing everything from almonds and walnuts to the juiciest tomatoes you'd ever want to taste. Our local chefs are really taking advantage of that bounty. But you'll hear strong claims for the Central Coast by acclaimed chef Curtis Stone. And L.A. street food expert Farley Elliott makes his case, while food and drinks editor for Esquire magazine Jeff Gordonier tells us about some of San Francisco's elite dining experiences. Judge for yourself. It's all coming up on California Now. Welcome to California Now. I'm your host, Satirius Johnson. On behalf of Visit California, our guests, and the staff of our podcast team, I'd like to thank you for subscribing and joining us on this adventure. We set a mission for ourselves to introduce you to some of the amazing people and places that make the Golden State such a fascinating destination. When you place the creativity of Californians right up next to the agricultural bounty of this state, you get the most exciting restaurant scene imaginable. So that's our theme for this episode, culinary highlights from the podcast so far. And it happens to be California Restaurant Month. Throughout the month of January, restaurants from across the state are rolling out special preset menus with exclusive promotional pricing. This year, California has a record number of 40 participating destinations, each with unique programming, festivals, or experiences. You should definitely check it out. You can learn more at dineinca.com. So please, pull up a chair, tuck your napkin under your chin, and dig into our culinary greatest hits show. Let's start in the realm of culinary fantasy. Imagine that someone paid you to roam through the tasting menus of San Francisco's most adventurous and upscale restaurants. Well, that's part of the job description for my next guest, Jeff Gordonier. He's the food and drinks editor for Esquire magazine. And when I spoke to him, he had just taken on that dream assignment for Esquire. Yeah, this was one of those things where an editor of mine mentioned, um, you know, I I was reading that San Francisco now has more three Michelin star restaurants than anywhere else in the country. Hmm. And I was like, yeah, three is the highest rating you can get from the Michelin uh, uh, operation. So I was like, that's true. And he said, well, why don't you go out there Monday (laughs) (laughs) and stay through the week and just just kind of eat it as many as you can and and write your impressions, speak to the chefs. Let's let's talk about what's happening and why and – so get on a plane. <laughs> um, so, okay. Uh, so I ended up eating essentially 13 Michelin stars in four days. I went to Atelier Cren, Cezanne, Croix, Bennu, and Californios. And then I had to go home. It, it was, you know, and, and we actually only focused on San Francisco proper. If Actually, the three Michelin star... Uh, surge has to do with the Bay Area in general, also incorporating Oakland, Sonoma County, uh, Manresa over in Los Gatos, Napa, Napa Valley, of course. So, but I decided to see what was happening in San Francisco itself, um, and it was uh, it was illuminating. The, you know, a weird under 
a sort of undercurrent of this is that I actually kind of loathe tasting menus. I've written an Esquire about how I I sort of dread them, and I think a lot of food writers do. Right. So this 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 was going to be essentially five tasting menus in four days. Um, <laughs> so, so how did you get through um, I, that? I, 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 yeah. Oh, how did I endure it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are worse problems in the world. Um, well, the thing is, I learned something being out there, and I learned something about why these spots have two or three Michelin stars. And one of the things I've come to think about tasting menus is they're they're a little they're a little like double or triple albums. If you remember that from I'm I'm old enough to remember that from the seventies. Oh and yeah, 80s. me too. Yet acts like The Clash and Prince. And, and uh, you know, the Rolling Stones and later on Magnetic Fields. I think Magnetic Fields put out a three-disc album called 69 Love Songs. Prince, Sign of the Times had a huge impact on my life. And The Clash's Sandinista was three albums. And London Calling was two albums. I've come to think that tasting menus, which can stretch on, you know, for 15 courses, 25 courses, in some cases even 50 courses, um, are a little like those albums. Like, I will go there with Prince. I will go there with the Magnetic Fields. I will go there with the Rolling Stones at their peak. I don't necessarily want to go there with the Gin Blossoms. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> like, I hear like you. Some bands are meant to be uh, one-hit wonder, you know? Right. Like Cameo, the guys who did Word Up. I loved Word Up. I don't know that I needed, you know, 25 songs of it. So um, so it depends. And and when I was in San Francisco, I found that I was really in the presence of some incredible talents. And, and so these were double, triple, quadruple albums that I was w- willing to listen to all the way through and found, found them to be intoxicating. So what were some of the highlights of your four-day splurge? I would say the three that knocked me out the most were Atelier Crenn, where the chef is Dominique Crenn, who's originally from France. And uh, she expresses the entire menu through a poem. So you sit down and instead of a, a menu that lists the items you're going to eat, you get a poem that somehow spiritually, emotionally corresponds to each course. Uh, I thought that was actually exquisite and sort of beautiful and transporting. Hmm. Um also really, really fond of a restaurant called Saison, where the chef is Joshua Skeins. Uh, and it's a, re- a restaurant where you get a tasting menu, but it's super elemental. It's almost like Josh would probably describe it as a high-end version of a hunting lodge. Like hmm. you'll just get a, a big bowl of lobster soup and you'll get a big steak. They'll say, this is the steak. It's antelope. <laughs> you'll just get this big slab of toast covered in sea urchin. They'll say, this is the sea urchin course. Right. Um, so, so not a lot of not a lot of pretense. No pretense, no show, no plating, as we've come to think of it. Just the ingredients at their best, uh, at the, you know, in terms of the season and sourcing. And I was also completely floored by Benu, uh, which is a restaurant where the chef is Corey Lee. Corey was born in Korea, uh, and he grew up in the states, and he, he brings primarily. Korean, Chinese, and Japanese influences to the tasting menu, but it's also just an autobiographical story of how he feels about cooking, and it's expressed with a high, high degree of technical proficiency. Like, everything is perfect. There are dishes that, when you look at them, you actually don't know how they were put together. Like, the, the these are not things you could just cook. In that way, it's the opposite of Saison. Um, when I got the antelope steak at Saison, I thought, well, I could probably figure out how to cook that. Mm. And in fact, 
the people at Saison gave one of the antelope steaks raw to my friend Phyllis Grant, this local food writer, <laughs> to take home to cook for her kids. So she did actually cook the antelope steak at home. The, like, version of a thousand-year-old egg that Corey Lee does at Benu, forget it. Right. Like, he could give me the cookbook. I would never be able to achieve this. Um, <laughs> the first series of courses were just, like, the most exquisite ethereal dim sum you've ever had in your life. And there's a joy in that. There's a joy in the elemental expression of a saison, but there's a, obviously a joy in the high-wire act of what Corey Lee does at Benu, where you sit there just marveling at the technical genius of it all. Um, I don't know which is my favorite. I, I think you should just go to all of them, and then, <laughs> and then you'll be broke. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> but here's the thing. When I asked Jeff the big question, if he were choosing his very, very last meal, what and where would it be? He said he'd choose a little place where he grew up in Pasadena called Pie and Burger, the polar opposite to the Michelin-starred restaurants he had covered for Esquire. He claims the hash browns are the best, and when the Olala berry pie is in season, well, he says that would be a sweet way to go out. Curtis Stone is well-known to anyone who watches cooking shows on TV. He's an accomplished chef who first rose to prominence while working with Marco Pierre White in London. Maybe you've seen him on the Today Show, Oprah, or Top Chef Masters and Master Chef. Well, he also runs the kitchens of two Los Angeles restaurants, Gwen and Maud, each named after one of his grandmothers and each very distinct. He spoke to us from Gwen. We're here on Sunset Boulevard, just on the corner of Seward, right in the middle of Hollywood. Um, and the idea for the restaurant is it's a, um, a butcher shop, first and foremost. That's kind of the heartbeat of the building. You walk in, whether you come into the shop or whether you come into the restaurant, you walk in through an old-school kind of European-style butcher shop. We do whole animal butchery. We make all our own charcuterie, and um, we buy the best of the best stuff from Wagyu from Australia and, you know, incredible things locally as well. Um, and then uh, you walk through, if you're here for the restaurant, you walk through the butcher shop and into the dining room and um, the restaurant is, uh, is a beautiful big old uh, uh, fire-centric, everything's cooked over a fire um, in the dining room and it's sort of, it's not a steakhouse, but I guess that's the closest parallel that you could, you could pull, meat-centric restaurant. Sounds great. So let's talk a little bit about your other restaurant, Maud. Um, Maud recently underwent some big changes, wine pairings are now a big part of the focus uh, at that restaurant now, right? Yeah, so Maud's a 24-seat dining room. It's in Beverly Hills on South Beverly Boulevard. Um, sorry, South Beverly Drive. Uh, and we, uh, I should know where it is. I drive there every day. Um, and we, um, it's, it's been, you know, a, a fun little restaurant. It, the idea of it initially was to start with one ingredient per month. We de- develop a 10-course tasting menu out of that one ingredient. Um, and we'd try and show off the ingredient in all of its glory. You know, we'd use the seeds and the blossom and the, the, the roots and the stems, and we'd really drill down onto that ingredient um, and try and show it in a lot of different forms. And uh, so that was the idea. We ran with it for four years. It was, um, you know, a very successful restaurant. It got voted LA's best restaurant at one point by, by LA Weekly. We're very proud of it. And um, you know, four years in, we just sort of decided it was time for a change and why the wine pairings had been a really big part of the restaurant. So we thought, let's focus on wine regions. And we basically switched an ingredient, you know, some kind of produce like a beet, for instance, um, for a wine region. So we started the first menu was done in Rioja, uh, the second in Burgundy and the third Central Coast of California. And the idea 
um, effectively is we take a small group of the team and we go there and we get inspired by the food and the wine and the history and the culture and um, we try and come up with a 10 course tasting menu that um, typifies what that region's got to offer. So, so when you were going on this research trip along the central coast of California, take us along for, for a moment. What were some of the highlights as you kind of tasted your way north? You know, the Santa Barbara and beyond area of the central coast is, is literally in our backyard and um, we get a lot of ingredients from there. So we sort of thought, you know, why not focus on an area that we know and love? We've, we've been using wines and ingredients from there for, for some years. So let's... Um, turn our attention there and we, I mean we, we really started our trip I guess in Santa Barbara which is uh, one of my favorite places to go for a weekend but um, you know there's so much beautiful stuff that not only comes out of the uh, the local farms and produce that comes out of there but also uh, out of the ocean so we started off there um, with um, this incredible woman named Stephanie who's actually an uni diver she goes out for urchins every morning and we started uh, by meeting her on her boat and cracking open sea urchins and eating them straight out of the shell, which was a pretty beautiful way to begin. I'm sure you've used uni before and oysters before, but actually seeing how they're produced and where they're harvested, how they're harvested, really makes a difference. It sure does. Um, And, you know, meeting the locals that have such passion around it. And, in fact, it's helped us to sort of shape the menu because when you, as a chef, you quite often start with an ingredient and you want to show off the technique that you've learned as a chef you know you, you think to yourself what can I do with this ingredient and, and in some cases the answer should be nothing you should do nothing you should just buy it in its freshest rawest most beautiful form and serve it just that way um, it, you know and it made us sort of stop and think eating uni on the water and you know chucking oysters out on the oyster bay um, and you sort of think, God, if only we could do this for our guest, because mm. um, some of the wine team that day had been out and found some incredible rosés, and they brought the rosés to us. They joined us at the uh, oyster farm, and we literally sat out on the water on a barge, drinking wine, drink, you know, drinking different types of rosé with these incredible oysters. And mm. then your mind starts wandering. You think, well, <laughs> if we can't bring our guests out here, how do we bring this to them? And um, right. I think what we'll end up doing is when the guests arrive we'll sort of show them some of the incredible seafood in its rawest form literally open to order um, whether that be the oysters and the uni or the crab that you know even the mussels that we sort of found along the way and then um, further into the menu we'll we'll cook with it and we'll sort of see whether we can do something as beautiful as uh, as just opening it natural so you'll get to sort of see the shellfish in a few different ways I know there's this expression, if it grows together, it goes together. Uh, Is that true? Is there a trick to wine pairing? I mean, how do you know when you've really nailed it? Look, my attitude is there's no rules, you know, and there should not be. And just like when you're in a kitchen, you think about a dish and you start, a dish is only made up of ingredients. And to me, um, your wine and your food, they go harmoniously together. Um, You know, and that's when you think about them as ingredients. What's going to work well together? Um, That idea of if it grows together, it goes together. It's a good one, you know, and it's usually um, it usually makes sense. It it sounds like with this trip, you you've successfully merged your work with something the rest of us would call fun. I mean, did did you gain a newfound appreciation for the Central Coast? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's such a beautiful... I've always known the Central Coast is a good place to surf and lay in the sun and hang out and get a good bite to eat, you know. Um, But when you get up there and sort of dig into the cuisine and the culture of uh, the region a little more, it blows you away, you know. It's just such a a beautiful 
place to be and you know you're absolutely right you know I, I guess I have found a way to um, make my work my fun um, or make my fun my work but uh, <laughs> you know it's uh, it's a pretty pretty incredible place to do it and um, it, it's just so it, the variety of stuff that's on offer is really unbelievable you know the most beautiful countryside followed by gorgeous coastal regions Coming up, we continue our celebration of California Restaurant Month with a favorite guest, Eater LA senior editor Farley Elliott. He dines both high and low, and will cover everything from elite eateries to food trucks. You're listening to California Now. This past year, the well-respected online media outlet Eater made a proclamation California is hands down the best place to eat in America. I asked Eater LA senior editor Farley Elliott to justify that bold claim. Uh, I, I really stand by it, and obviously my colleagues do. You, you can do fine dining here. You can do casual, you know, fast food. This is Southern California specifically, the the heart of all of that. We also do really beautiful, straight from the farm, you know, ingredients and, and outdoor ranch cuisines that we've had for literally thousands of years. So I don't personally think that there's anything that California can't do better than most other places. Well, you know, so much of California is farmland and the product here is just breathtaking. How does that play into the state's status as a food destination? Oh, my gosh. I mean, if you talk about people within the restaurant industry and the love and reverence that they have for what California is capable of growing and producing, it's really unrivaled. You look at a chef like David Chang from Momofuku, who just moved out here from New York. He's got dozens of restaurants across the world, and he's finding ingredients and uses for different bits of produce that, that he never thought was possible just from going to green grocers and, and marketplaces in New York. So it really is a, a game changer. And if you look at like the South, Southern California, Santa Monica Farmer's Market, they've done more than just about any farmer's market in America to really push that product forward. I know there are quite a few Michelin star restaurants in and around San Francisco. We actually had Esquire's Jeff Gordon here in to talk about some of them. But, but you guys went looking for hidden food gems all over the state. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, fine dining it certainly has its place. I'm a guy who didn't grow up in that kind of environment, you know, no uh, no silver spoon, no white napkins tucked into linen shirts. So <laughs> for me, it's always been about really discovering or, or or I guess I should say less discovering and just kind of embracing what's always been here. You know, we, we've had guys selling tamales on the street since before the founding of the city of Los Angeles. And that is pretty true at different levels all across the state. Right, right. Well, let's explore some of those regions. Let's start with the the Central Coast, for instance. You found a lot to love there. Yeah, absolutely. The Central Coast is this amazing mishmash of old history and, and current agriculture and, and ranch cuisines, but it also is modernizing. You've got Tesla zipping up and down the freeways on weekends and a, a wine country that is you know marked in the billions of dollars annually. So it's a, a really unique place for all of these different confluences to kind of come together. And, and in detailing some of the work here, I was really for this California package for Eater, trying to drill down into why the ranch cuisine, tri-tip, linguisa sausage, things like that, have, have maintained their status in this one particular region for so long. And it really goes back to almost the 1400s with the early onset of explorers from Europe who were kind of integrating themselves into the communities, Chumash Indians all along the central coast. And, and it's grown from there. It's, it's pretty fascinating stuff. Well, let's talk about that a little. What exactly is ranch cuisine? 
So, yeah, if you think of barbecue as something that is maybe from the Carolinas or from Kansas or from Texas, it's a very particular low and slow, smoky kind of preparation for usually tougher cuts of meat. But here in California, we're so used to mild climates, easy access to produce, to seafood, that we have really adapted our own kind of sub-cuisine with things like tri-tip, which was a previously unused cut of beef that would have been part of ground beef that over the centuries has been taken out. It's this big kind of meaty triangle that gets roasted over red oak, which is so readily abundant on the central coast. And it gives this almost steak-like texture, but still a lot of smoke, a little bit of that crispy from the fire at the edges. And you pair that with something like Portuguese linguiça sausage, which has been being imported for hundreds and hundreds of years along the central coast. And then you add native ingredients like pinquito beans, which are are a bean that actually grows native to the central coast. And it all kind of comes together in this really unique bit of, of, you know, beautiful ephemera for food that you can't find anywhere else, not only in California, but the rest of America. All right, let's let's switch gears here. I love Mexican food, and apparently so does the writer who traveled up Highway 99 in the Central Valley. What can you tell us about the food scene there? Yeah, so Gustavo Ariano, really amazing, award-winning writer. He sort of wrote the book on taco culture in America a few years ago. He got commissioned by us to drive up and down the 99. So that's through Bakersfield, Modesto, Fresno, all these areas, and and kind of lean into the Mexican culture that is such a backbone of dining for the not only migrants and immigrants who live in the area, but the first, second, third generations that have been there forever. And, you know, it's, it's, it shouldn't be any surprise, but a lot of people have sort of raised an eyebrow when he says that it's some of the best Mexican food you can get in America. And that's mm. talking about, you know, uh, taco trucks. It's talking about sit-down restaurants. It's it's really at every level. And it's a, a beautiful thing to be able to kind of shepherd that knowledge out to a wider audience of people who maybe aren't taking the 99 with any frequency anymore. Right, right. Well, what are some of the nuances of those towns along Highway 99 in the Central Valley? You know, Fresno, Modesto, Stockton, Stockton like, you, like you mentioned. Kind of let's talk about some of the maybe the differences or the subtleties or some of the things you can find there that you can't really find anywhere else. Yeah, I think what you get is these kind of amalgamations of what started out as purely regional Mexican cuisine from the place that it originated, but then it moves up to California and it starts to kind of bend and blend in these really unique ways. So you see on the modern Mexican side what we call Alta California cuisine, which is you know taking maybe French or European techniques and applying them to a dish so it, it might look French or it might look German, but it has ingredients that are added its base something truly Mexican. You know, the Fresno chili is so named because of where it grows. And you really get the opportunity to be able to mix and match the produce that is, is quite literally right at hand with techniques that have only been introduced in the Americas for the past couple hundred years. Well, yeah, I'd like to hit a couple more regions before we let you go. Are there any destination worthy spots out in the desert? Yeah, you can, if you're willing to kind of poke your, your nose around, you can come across some, some real gems. Our national dining critic, Bill Addison, you know, he's anonymous. He spends about 50 weeks a year on the road just eating all over America. He put in about two and a half months worth of work just for the state of California directly and really came away with some places that he loved. Among them, uh, La Copine, which is out in Flamingo Heights, kind of Yucca Valley area near Joshua Tree, you know, uh, 
a partnership, two women who moved out from New York, cooked in Los Angeles for a little bit and decided that they wanted to leave the big city life behind and really embrace the high desert culture that you see out there near towns like Pioneer Town. And they were doing brunch for a while and now they moved into dinner service and they really are a hub for these, you know, entire regions where otherwise you don't have a lot of options for dining outside of fast food. Uh, well, I'm beginning to see your point that California really does seem to be like the best place to eat in America. <laughs> I'm glad we agree. Farley Elliott is also the author of Los Angeles Street Food, a history from Tamaleros to taco trucks. And again, he throws down the big claims. This time, he notes, L.A. is the uncontested street food champion of the United States, and it isn't even a fair fight. Well, you know, not only have we been doing it just about longer than anybody else, but the breadth of possibilities here is is really unrivaled. You know, we're the second largest uh, Mexican city in the world outside of Mexico City. And that doesn't even take into account, you know, Central Americans, folks locally who have started doing their own thing, living here for generations. And so it's a pretty easy, I think, argument to make once you start looking at how much is available in the city. Now, I know your book is 176 pages long, but because this is a lightning round, we're going to ask you to to do the impossible. We want you to name your top five street food outposts in L.A., ranked from number five to number one, and we want you to do it quickly. So you think you can handle the pressure? Boy, oh boy, I'm sweating already, but I'll do my best. (laughs) All right, let's start with number five. What is it? Where is it? And what's on the menu? So I've got to give it up to All Flavor No Grease. It's a guy named Keith Garrett who used to operate a taco stand out of his driveway in Watts. He's since upgraded to a couple of food trucks. But he's doing this really unique thing, which is the fusion of Mexican flavors that everybody knows here in Los Angeles with a kind of modern, almost soul food tradition. So you can do, you know, ground turkey, but in a quesadilla. And he cooks it all up with a smile. And if you ever go to his Instagram, All Flavor No Grease, he's got an unbelievable energy that really draws people in. And and not only is the food delicious, but you couldn't be rooting for a better guy. Wow. Strong start. All right. Number four. Moose Craft Barbecue. Now, this is really interesting because they're doing Texas-style barbecue, but in East L.A., in their backyard. And so as a sidebar, you've got dishes like esquites, you know, corn off the cob with a little bit of, you know, mayonnaise, parquet, butter, some seasonings that are truly representative of the neighborhood. And then, you know, Andrew Munoz, the husband, is doing true low and slow Texas-style brisket to hundreds of people every weekend. Okay, now you're making me hungry. (laughs) I'm going to have to try that. Number three. What's your number three? Uh, I've got a real soft spot for Marisco Salisco, which is a super regionally specific style of seafood crunchy taco. So they take shrimp and they chop it up, marinate it overnight, and then they stuff it into a corn tortilla, fry the whole thing on the outside. So you get these plump, juicy shrimp tacos, a little kind of aguachile, spicy sauce over top, some slices of avocado. Just go to town right on the sidewalk for just a couple of bucks. Amazing. Okay, who lands second on your list? Uh, I really, really have been loving the food lately at the Guatemalan Street Fair that happens near MacArthur Park every week. You know, this is a representation of the Central American side of what Los Angeles does. And in that Westlake neighborhood, it's almost all Central American. So you've got people that are doing ad hoc cooking out of, you know, shopping carts, making things at home, bringing them down, whether it's, you know, a big sope style, you know, tortillas, tacos. We've got grilled meats. It's all just a big flavor bonanza that happens a couple weeks weeknights uh, right in the heart of, of what now is the middle of Los Angeles. Wow, sounds delicious. All right, now we're at the number one, your number one street food option in Los Angeles. What is it? 
I just don't think you can go wrong with Kogi Barbecue. You know, Roy Choi really did reinvent the food truck game for not only L.A., but the rest of the world. This is a taco truck that I've got no shame in saying I had at my wedding. You know, the the (laughs) marriage of Korean barbecue flavors, tortillas, is purely Angelino. And I think if you're only going to eat at one place in Los Angeles, it's the best representation of what we are as a city. That's Farley Elliott, senior editor of L.A. Eater. Coming up, we continue our celebration of California Restaurant Month with a trip to Sacramento. Stay with us. My next guest is a dining critic for the Sacramento Bee and an authority on California's farm-to-fork capital. I asked Kate Washington where to go and what to order in and around Sacramento. Publications around the country have been calling the state capital one of the best up-and-coming food cities in America. One of the key factors is that Sacramento sits in the middle of 1.5 million acres of some of the very best farmland in the world. And we have amazing growers who are growing everything from almonds and walnuts to the juiciest tomatoes you'd ever want to taste. And our local chefs are really taking advantage of that bounty. All right. Well, let's unpack some of that. Uh, that that phrase farm to fork capital is something that gets tossed around quite a bit. What exactly does that mean? Well, I think it really means taking what is grown in those acres of rich farmland that I was just talking about and bringing them to the plate with an eye to really showcasing their best qualities and their best flavors, their natural flavors. Um I mean, that's a key cornerstone of California cuisine, which goes back for decades. Um, And it's something that I think a lot of Sacramento chefs have been doing for a long time. But now the city is really taking, taking that, running with it, and showing it off as a point of pride, as we really should. All right. Well, you know, people love lists, as do I. (laughs) So can you advocate for (laughs) three essential farm-to-fork restaurants in Sacramento, places that visitors should strongly consider on their next trip to town? Yes. um, Three that I would recommend would be Mulvaney's, which is um, run by Patrick and Bobbin Mulvaney. They are kind of real stars of the local food scene. They've also nurtured a lot of other chefs. They do an incredible pork chop. It's um, The restaurant is charmingly in a historic firehouse, a brick firehouse. And if any of your listeners saw Lady Bird, that firehouse used to house New Helvetia Coffee, which was a midtown favorite going way back. And it's where Lady Bird was supposed to work at the coffee shop. Um, But now it houses Mulvaney's and it's a really, um, really friendly, a little bit quirky, accessible to everybody. Everything I've ever had there is delicious. And they also have a beautiful patio that's great for the almost nine months of like warm evenings for dining outside that we can get here in Sacramento. Yeah, I've heard wonderful things about Mulvaney's. It's definitely on my list. Uh, I haven't gotten there yet, but I'm I'm yeah. definitely uh, at the top of my list. Okay, where, where, what's another farm to fork favorite? Next, I would say Ella Dining Room and Bar, which is downtown um, at Twelfth and K Streets. It is um, run by the Selland family, who have a number of local restaurants. Um, Josh Josh Nelson, one member of the family, was really instrumental in creating and pushing forward the farm to fork movement as kind of a brand for the city of Sacramento. It's a really great um, special occasion restaurant, but you can also go there and sit at the bar and get oysters or bone marrow. Um, 
they do a lot of uh, interesting cocktails. Their menu changes seasonally, as do all of the places I think that I'm going to mention. Um, but they're a real standby of fine dining in Sacramento and, and not to be missed. Yeah, I've been to Ella uh, quite a few times, and I have to say the 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 not only is the cuisine just so fresh and amazing, but the vibe is very relaxed, and it's it's just a wonderful place. Yeah, it's relaxed, but it also feels special to me, which is what a, one of the things I like about it. Um, a thing to watch out for if you go there is. Um, Take a look around and peek up. Um, they they did some really nice things with the design, and they imported a bunch of vintage shutters from Europe, and they're beautifully used, like around the upper portions of the restaurant, um, up above on the walls, and you you wouldn't necessarily notice, but it's a fun thing to keep your eye out for. the The design okay. there is quite pleasant too. All right, and what about the third? Um, for the third, I would mention a newcomer, Canon. That's C A N O N, not with two ends like the gun. Um, it is the brainchild of Clay Nutting, who is a local restaurateur, and Brad Chakey, who's the chef. He um, is a Sacramento native who left after his culinary training and went and worked other places. He worked, um, he helmed the kitchen at Soul Bar in Calistoga, um, which had a Michelin star. So he has some really high-end fine dining experience, but he's come home and he and Clay Nutting have opened this um, restaurant in East Sacramento, which is a neighborhood just outside of the downtown core, but very easy to get to for visitors. Um, and their place uses a lot of interesting global flavors, does some really interesting things with vegetables. One of my favorite things there is an enormous pickled vegetable platter that, you know, you wouldn't think, oh, pickled vegetable plate, it doesn't sound necessarily that interesting, but they present it on crushed ice and it's absolutely beautiful. It looks like a party on this huge platter. And they <laughs> they change up what the vegetables are seasonally, but it's visually stunning. The place has a great bar, has another great patio. They do a really great brunch. Um, and yes, of course, they have avocado toast, but it has crab on it and it's really <laughs> delicious. So that's a, a favorite. That's Kate Washington, dining critic for the Sacramento Bee. We went on to talk about our favorite Vietnamese places and the strong immigrant community in Sacramento. You can hear all the podcasts archived at visitcalifornia.com slash podcast. And that concludes our Culinary Greatest Hits show. I'll be spending some time in this and future Januaries celebrating California Restaurant Month by looking for deals and new eateries to try in and around my home near Sacramento. Thanks again for listening to California Now. We're working on so many great stories to bring you in 2019. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. Please subscribe. We've mentioned California Restaurant Month a few times during this Culinary Greatest Hits episode, mostly because we think it's a great way to experience and celebrate the Golden State's amazing culinary offerings. We've assembled all of the essential information about California Restaurant Month at one URL, dineinca.com, which is the best place to go to plan your food-centric trip to California. Check it out. <laughs> <laughs>